So Money Episode 672, Katya Beecham, co-founder and CEO of Birchbox. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Happy New Year, So Money Nation. Welcome to 2018. Hope you had an amazing New Year's Eve. We are probably flying right now as you're listening to this to Turks and Caicos, our first family vacation in forever. All four of us headed to the island of Turks and Caicos. It is a children's themed resort, which is all we can really do right now. There are Sesame Street characters roaming this resort, I hear. Elmo can tuck you in. My son is not looking forward to that. He is not into caricatures, life-size caricatures. He wouldn't even sit on Santa's lap. I don't think he's going to go for a larger-than-life Elmo. But we shall see, and you will hear about it. But... I digress. Today is the new year, and I wanted to start us off with the kind of theme that I'm really going for in the new year, which is making your own rules, being a badass, just being you're so moneyest. And I couldn't think of a more appropriate person to have us kick off 2018 than Katya Beecham. Katya Beecham is, as you may know, the co founder and CEO of Birchbox, which is a leading beauty subscription service and store. We connected last time, she and I, on CNBC. I got the chance to follow her around for 48 hours on the show Follow the Leader, which a lot of you tuned in for, and she may be familiar to you from there. But Katya is a force. Just Google her. She is a leading voice and champion for all women who work. We discussed being unapologetic about having it all and wanting it all how companies can create an environment where women can feel the freedom to have their families and thrive at work, and how she and her husband managed their personal finances. Had to go there because I'm super nosy, and I'm glad that she was game. Here is the lovely Katya Beecham. Katya Beecham, welcome to So Money, my lady friend. Well, and Happy New Year. You're the first episode of 2018. Ah, what a privilege. Happy <laughs> New Year. So nice to talk to you. It is. It's nice to have the opportunity to finally catch up for listeners who may be familiar with Katya and I. You know, last time we connected, it was, uh, oh gosh, a couple of years ago on the CNBC show, Follow the Leader. You and your team were kind enough to let me... Uh, shadow you for two days, the up frenzy of running an, a startup in New York City. It was amazing. Um, but it's been a while. And I know that you've grown your family, you've grown the business. Catch me up a little bit. What's what's happened in the last two years? Yes, a lot has happened. Um, well, on a personal level, I have my three and a half year old twins and now their new brother, who's about five, about six months old. And that's been exciting and a new frontier of parenthood. Um, And from a business perspective, it's been a whole experience. We've taken Birchbox from being, you know, a pioneer that 
invented a new way to engage with a customer and a new path to purchase and beauty um, and have experienced, you know, an incredible amount of growth an incredible amount of development to now also being a company that is profitable um, and self-sustained was an incredible journey and quite a journey. Well, let's go back to the beginning of the journey for those of us who may not be super familiar with the background. I mean, almost everyone knows what Birchbox is, but may not know your initial discovery of this idea. And I, I know that it was at Harvard, you and a friend started this concept. And I believe I read that it took you 48 hours to come up with the basic concept of Birchbox. My my co-founder Haley and I, we started Birchbox when we were about six months out from graduation. And we had, you know, really not intended to start a company. Our intention initially was to write a business plan. But when we saw what we felt like was a glaring opportunity in beauty with less than 2% of sales and beauty being online, we did in 48 hours, we came up with what is Birchbox and really what is Birchbox today to, you know, this concept of try, learn and buy. And, you know, I think one of the things that's really important to understand about what we saw and the insight that we had was that it really wasn't grounded in what is best known about Birchbox, which is the subscription. And when we saw the opportunity and we saw that beauty really wasn't being sold online in 2010, we were focused on why. Why were consumers not willing to purchase online? There was a lot of research happening, a ton of content already, really starting to grow communities uh, online, but purchases still were not happening. And we did research and focus groups. And we basically came to a pretty clear realization, which was that consumers required to touch and experience beauty in real life before purchasing it for prestige beauty. So that was a requirement. Nobody was willing to just purchase without knowing the product. The second thing was that the beauty industry has a lot of product and that this proliferation of choice was actually really limiting people and, um, really not allowing people to consume more or change their behavior because it was just a lot. And the internet actually exacerbated the problem. So in general, there was a lot, but if you put it online, it's basically infinite. And so we realized that we needed to make it finite. We needed to make it simple. We needed to make it delightful and we needed to make it tactile. So we said we are going to overcome what the internet is not able to do for beauty. And we are going to leverage the internet for what it is uniquely able to do. So overcoming the touch and try through sampling, the, you know, limiting the world to five products, a personalized um, subscription, and in a cadence that we thought was really doable, really digestible, and not this, you know, insurmountable amount of product. And then leverage the internet for what it can do, which is frankly, get to know you and understand what your needs are to create a more personalized and more relevant experience. And then of course, a seamless transaction. So we got really excited mm. and we just started operating. It's smart because I do think that the companies, the new companies that are doing exceptionally well, the ones that offer like Birchbox, not just a product, but an experience, you really have to tap into human mindset and human psychology and we know the studies have shown re more recently that 
too much choice is not a good thing. That when we actually have fewer choices, we can make better choices and obviously choices faster and with more precision. So that that is that's pretty smart. Right. It's logical. I mean, you definitely understand. I think there's always this temptation to increase the offer, to offer tiers, to, you know, just in case, you know, you wanted to fit the widest audience. And what we continue to find that the insight was obviously the beauty industry has millions of products, individual products, but even in our product of a $10 monthly subscription, that the simplicity of that as the entry point is extremely valuable and extremely powerful. I want to go back to visiting Katya as a little girl growing up in El Paso, Texas. I read that you had really no understanding of entrepreneurship, but you did know that you wanted to try something challenging and hard. What is it about your DNA, your hardwiring that led you to to pursue entrepreneurship? I, you know, what I can tell you is that I had a realization when I was in finance that I was doing well, my career was happening, and that I just had so much more to give. And that was unsatisfying. I wanted to be more challenged. I knew that. So I went to business school, recognizing that I wanted to have an experience that really pushed me. Um, And when I took my first entrepreneurship class, I wasn't looking for entrepreneurship, but it was a required class first year of business school. It just clicked. I realized that there would be nothing harder and that it would be the real opportunity to meet myself and to see what was possible if no one else was dictating my possibility and no one else was saying, this is the hoop to jump through. This is the standard to me. But I knew I would always have the highest expectation, the highest standard, the most lofty goals for myself. Um, And I knew that I would have to face what I was great at and frankly, what I wasn't. And that that was something I really needed to know. I just wanted to know that. And no better place to incubate that than probably Harvard Business School. Sidebar question. There's so many great ideas that come out of Harvard Business School. So many great entrepreneurs. When you're there, do you feel pressure to come up with something brilliant? (laughs) Not when we went. So when we went, the curriculum wasn't quite focused on entrepreneurship um, at all. There was a one class the first year, and then you could take a couple, there were a few class offered, classes offered second year, you could select. Now, I think there is. When I go back to campus, there's such a focus and such an emphasis and um, a requirement that you start a company your first year. So I think the pressure is on. I want to talk about your personal financial philosophies in a minute, but let's also talk about, before we get to that, the fact that you're a mom, you're a CEO, you're an entrepreneur, you not only have one kid, not two children, three children. That like just blows my mind. I have two and I'm very busy and sleep deprived. I can't even tell you. I'm sure you, you, I don't even know how you're doing it. How does she do it all? But there's so many companies out there that are not. And I know that at Birchbox, you're doing a lot to make moms there feel appreciated and that there is upward trajectory and why, what are other companies not getting right that you have figured out and not only companies, but female leaders? I think when I look at you, I'm sure behind the scenes, it's, it's more messy and it's a good mess, but what are some, what's your advice for companies who want to promote women and also for female leaders who want to be mothers and provide for their families and as it so happens, run companies? 
Right. I mean, look, I have a pretty simple answer to this. I think that we've been really focused on a conversation around women and around mothers, but I think the conversation has really been dominated around maternity or primary care leave. Um, and that is a piece of it for sure is figuring out how to support women um, when they are having a child and they need that time to really be with the child and be with their families. And I really do believe in that, but I just also feel very strongly that that is one piece of how you support women in this as a company and as a leader. I believe that it is so critical to focus mostly on how women are coming back to work from that. And what I mean is that I really believe that it is my, I mean, it's my responsibility. I take it as a responsibility for Birchbox to make it worth it to come back. I, you know, I don't know how to say it any other way, but what I mean by that is, you know, I believe that there is an inherent bias that happens when a woman decides to have a family where somehow people start to think, and she starts to think, and we've all ingrained this in, in ourselves that, well, you know, maybe I can't have it all. Maybe I now need to take a step back in my career and people start assuming things for you. And almost this, the thing I really, really despise is the sense women have that they have to like pay back the fact that they took maternity leave or they needed flexibility. And now that means they can't have the same career aspiration. And I just firmly believe we are doing society a disservice by not showing women that they can come back. And we as a society, as a company and as leaders can believe that they can still have the career that they dreamt of, that you do not come back less ambitious. And frankly, it is a superhuman feat and you've done it, right, Farnoosh? It is superhuman to become a mother. Oh my gosh. Right? It's the opposite. <laughs> Two natural births later, I can tell you women are the better right. gender. No, but like really what we go through is uh, it, it, we accomplish the impossible. I think I always say if men were the ones who had to get pregnant, it would be a much simpler process. They would have figured out like how to beam the child right. out of you by now. <laughs> Well, I think, you know, it's, it's all of it. It's, um, you know, becoming a mother, I think, I think it really does awaken something inside, you know, people inside women that, that is powerful and that should be seen as a fantastic moment and a fantastic strength and not a disability. And frankly, the, you know, the way that we handle it is like, it's some sort of disability, a hardship, yeah. instead of thinking about it as, you know, an incredible aspect of being a human, an incredible aspect of being a woman. Um, so, you know, that's how we really try to differentiate. We really try to say it's not just leave. It's about offboarding and onboarding. It's about helping our managers understand the nuance of this conversation and helping support people when they come back by, you know, helping them recognize that this is, um, it is a challenging time, especially your first time. But it doesn't mean you have to put your whole self and all of your ambition aside. And, you know, we really push to make sure that you don't feel that that's the choice ahead. I don't know if you experience this, but every year that I've had a child, that year ends up being my biggest earning year and my most accomplished year. And I don't think it's inconsequential. I do think that when, to your point, when you become a mom and you go through that you go through the maternity process, you go through the delivery, you go through the postpartum, that takes a certain amount of strength. And not only that, but I think once you become a working parent, 
You easily can determine what is a no and what is a yes. You become super efficient with your time. You calculate ex- opportunities much differently. And, sure. and you are, are more critical about trade-offs. So I see that in my life. I see that in my friends who are moms and even you know fathers these days, dads are stepping up to the plate in, in many more, more ways than our, say our parents' generation. And so um, it like to your point, it, it would behoove companies to really embrace that and leverage that for uh, their own good. I always say, you know, when, when, you're, when you see a woman who believes she can have it all, when you see anybody who believes they can have it all, that's a good <laughs> sign. Why are we so afraid? Why are we so afraid of that kind of ambition, of that kind of optimism, that kind of belief in ourselves? Why aren't we saying that's actually somebody who's going to get shit done? Right. Instead of saying, well, I don't know, can they handle it all? I think, you know, we need to we need to have this conversation um, in our companies. We need to have this conversation as a society. I think we have a problem that we're talking about as far as women at the top and, you know, how small and minuscule the numbers get. And the only way to change that is to put more through. Right. The throughput matters. Um, and the only way we're really going to change the throughput is if we make it worth it. And that means that we need to offer women exciting careers to come back to and support and flexibility and all of it. And we need to recognize that that is not a, a hardship for a company, that the company benefits from those fantastic leaders and from their decisiveness and from their clarity and from their perspective. It's not some sort of charity it's great. And it's great for all of us. So clearly you're a badass female entrepreneur. What is your personality when it comes to money? Uh, how would you describe your, your relationship with money, Katya? I think it's such an interesting question. Um, and I'm trying to be really open and honest about that. I haven't thought about it a lot. Um, I came, as you said, from El Paso, Texas and from single income uh, household. Uh, didn't have a lot of money and had a great life, honestly, um, and incredible experiences. So what I, I really believe is that it's not a huge motivator for me in terms of having a lot of money so I can have things. But I do recognize the power of money in, in terms of being able to change the world. I get it. Um, I am motivated because I recognize that you know, my ambition to change the potential for women uh, could really be accelerated by having a way to accelerate it for other women. Yeah. Right. So um, I see the power of it and I recognize it. But I also know that you can have on a personal level, a happy life with not Mm. a lot of it. You're a great advocate for women. How have you been a financial advocate for yourself in your own life? I know you are big on women in your within your company and also just at large, you know, you've talked about the importance of knowing your worth and asking for it. So if you have a personal example of that or, or an experience, would love for you to share. I will tell you that it gets really hard when it is for yourself. I think I'm great at advocating for it for my team. I'm really... You know, I know that and I'm pushing myself really hard. So the first step I'd say is educating yourself on what you need to know and what your worth is, um, getting lots of perspective so you can have your own view on that because it isn't anyone else's view. It has to be something you can own. And then having a conversation about it without any sort of apology in it, you know, 
saying, I'm going to have this conversation with you. Here's my timeline. And this is what I expect. And if the, you know, in my case, my conversations with a board of directors, so I know it varies for different people, um, just keep in, insisting. And I, I have been able to do that successfully, but to be honest, it is uncomfortable and I have to really push myself to keep, you know, keep getting uncomfortable and keep making sure that I'm not shying away from it. Yeah. I get comfortable with getting uncomfortable as a fundraiser for the company, especially in the early days. Um, you know, the, the VC world is largely male dominated and as two women, um, promoting a company, trying to get funding, how did that manifest? I don't think we realized that there was some sort of hardship in it in the early days. We, went out to fundraise for our initial round of financing, a seed round of financing. And it was extremely challenging and unsuccessful is the only way to describe the first several months of it. Um, And we definitely were talking to mostly men and hearing feedback that was extremely subjective um, and showcased that it was really hard. Well, the notion that like, oh, well, I, you know, my wife doesn't wear makeup came up quite a bit, um, which, right. We're all like, you hear that and you can't help but laugh. Like my wife doesn't use beauty. I mean, even more broadly, you're like, exactly I, I just remember thinking, because you're not, well, first of all, yeah. that is so not true. Like you're so not aware that <laughs> yes, she does. Um, so, you know, things like that, a very broad brush, like recommendations around like, do you really need a box? Does it really need to be a subscription? You know, I mean, the whole fundamentals of the model, because I think it was really, you know, clear that the pain point that we identified was a pain point women had. um, And that men were like, what are you talking about? Like, my wife can buy this stuff, right? She knows where to go, or she doesn't buy it (laughs) in those cases. Um, And so I think we did experience that, but we didn't honestly think about it being because you're women, I didn't really recognize it until we were really going out for later financings and seeing um, how ridiculously strong our business was and still how challenging the conversations were. And I started to realize that I don't know if men can hear women and see women as visionary easily. Mm. I think that they're um, is a discounting of a woman who appears to say like, I'm going to invent a reality. Whereas I think when a man does that, well, I mean, it's very accepted in venture that that's a visionary, exciting, compelling I think with women. It, it is exciting, but it's more questioned. It's more like, I don't know, it, versus saying as like, that is ambition. That's the kind of you know thing we need to see. We need something that is seismic, that's taking on an entire industry. Um, and that's when I started to realize that it was different. And frankly, it's extremely frustrating. Hmm. You know, I think it's true. I think women are met with a lot more doubt, not just when they're asking for money for a business, but uh, pretty much anything, pretty much anything where they're asking for uh, or they're, they're, they're proclaiming something that's really amazing. Um, I don't know about that. Have you checked your numbers? Do you really need right. a box? Whatever. 
the minutia, right? The, like the details versus um, really understanding whether I think at a fundamental level, we were saying something that was pretty hard to refute, which is this is a $500 billion industry. It's the fastest growing large sustained industry. It hasn't had real disruption in distribution since specialty retail, which was 20 years ago, right? Yeah. Um, it's less than 2% sold online and we can't keep this shit in stock. We are waitlisted to the wazoo. We have zero customer acquisition costs, incredible gross margins, incredible unit economics, you know, which is what should just be empirically enough, right? That is, in my mind, just ridiculous, all the ridiculous dynamics. And I think once I realized that, yeah, it was different, um, you know, I started to think about what does that mean for us? And I think it's, it's been a part, of, a part of our journey is, okay, how do we become a self-sustaining business? Because that really helps open up all of the options. You're constantly evolving. I mean, when I was chatting with you two years ago, I think you had just sort of experiment. You were experimenting with the brick and mortar mm-hmm. and that's going really well. Um, I think it's always interesting to find online businesses who decide to make the transition to physical location. You don't usually hear about it the other way around, but that has served you well. It's been an incredible experience. Yes. I think what we've realized is that the opportunity isn't just about bringing beauty online, but what we've learned is that Birchbox is really tapping into a customer that the beauty industry has not focused on. It's a more casual beauty consumer. It's the everyday beauty consumer. It's not the obsessed and passionate beauty consumer. We far over-index in her as far as our customer base, and we change her spend in beauty because she has not been a priority, so she has not been spending to her potential. And the opportunity with brick and mortar is to really be there for her um, in all channels. And I do believe that given our ambition and our mission to become the destination for that consumer to buy beauty, we have to think multi-channel. We have to think about being digital first and digital native, but the physical world and the fact that that is a part of every category shopping experience. I ask this of all guests, and so now it's your turn. What is your biggest failure when it comes to money? And it doesn't have to be like something you know ridiculous or crazy. Not everybody has those foreclosures in their in their uh, background, but you know something where you know it was a hard lesson learned, and it had to do with money. I mean, fundraising. Hmm. Fundraising was we failed. We failed multiple times. Right. I think multiple times to have the objective that we wanted. The initial round of fundraising, we came out of business school, guns a blazing. We got second place in the business plan competition. We were out of a successful beta test. We were sure we were going to easily raise a convertible note. That was what all the rage was in 2010. And we could not. We met with 100 people who did not fund us. What? Yes. So the 101st person funded you. I mean, I, I hear this a lot. And I don't think, again, a coincidence from female founders, all the rejection, all the door shutting in their face. And so, um, I mean, me, I think I could last through like 10 no's. You went through 100. Um, what kept you going? And uh, what, what do you think ultimately got you a yes? I mean, honestly, it was this real authentic belief that this was inevitable. 
that we found lightning in the bottle and that if somebody wasn't saying yes, they just didn't get it. It was just this unwavering certainty that it would happen. Um, honestly, I don't know where that comes from, but I remember, I mean, hearing the no's, it definitely, those are really down moments and it's depressing when you feel so sure and so convicted. But I think that kind of describes the entire experience of Birchbox or of doing anything that has extraordinary ambition, which is, it is mostly no's and it is resilience and persistence that defines the ability to succeed. And, and the no's are a critical aspect mm-hmm. of success. Critical. Um, a lar- largely because hardship is when you get to know yourself the best and it offers the most exponential growth. And it's really when you define your character and you decide whether you're going to hear somebody else's doubt in you and believe it or you're going to take it, understand why, and just never stop proving people wrong. Hardship makes you who you are. It's 100% true. What would you say is now a good financial habit that you have that you practice as, say, the head of household, you know, a mom, a, a shopper, a saver? What's something that you like to do as a way to keep your personal household finances, you know, on track? So luckily being busy really helps keep your personal finances on track. Not a lot of time Um, to shop. Right. So not a lot of time to shop. And I think not overcomplicating it has been something that I've really found to keep things simple, to not have too much credit, to not have too many different accounts that you're using from a day-to-day perspective so that you really have visibility um, and you, it's just manageable. You can get your arms around it. That's critical. I need to be able to basically manage um, money in, in between meetings on my way to places on my phone. Yes. And if I can't, it's too complicated. So streamlining expenses on one card, you know, um, do you, with couples, I always ask this, do you guys keep your money all in one place? Do you, I and my, my husband and I, we have like a shared account, but we also have our own individual accounts because we, like having autonomy and it's easier when you want to buy like a birthday gift. It doesn't all come on one statement. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We have both also, um, but visibility, I suppose if we need to into each other's transparency, a hundred percent. Yeah. We can, we have that as well. All right. So just a couple of minutes left, Katya, let's do some fun. So money fill in the blanks. This is when I start off a sentence and then you finish it. Okay. All right. So if I won the lottery tomorrow, because I totally see you as a big lottery player (laughs) now, but let's just say you got this huge lump sum. The first thing I would do is. First thing I would do is take a breath with my family, a couple days of just looking, seeing and appreciating it. But the second thing I would do is think about how I'm going to use some portion of that to attract capital to do later stage investment with a focus on women. Nice. I think there's a lot of like early stage stuff that's happening, which is exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still think there's a really big gap for later stage and for building these multi-billion dollar businesses. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right. When I splurge, I like to spend my money on? Experiences. Um, food, travel, shows, like Broadway shows, 
We just got tickets to Dear Evan Hansen. Us too. Oh, That's our what? Christmas gift to that was our Christmas gift to each other. Likewise. Huh. <laughs> Maybe we'll see you. We'll see you at the theater. <laughs> um, all right. One thing I spend on that makes my life easier or better. Nanny. What is nanny, it? Nanny, nanny, nanny. <laughs> Nanny, 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 nanny. Oh, nanny. I thought you said manicure like Manny. No, no, no. I don't get manicures. <laughs> Who has time for that? Nanny. Nanny, nanny, nanny. You're right. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. I want to do an episode one time on like just childcare. You know, I think that's... Uh. Especially for working women who are out there advocating for other working women, I feel that we have to kind of give credence to uh, all of the support that we have in our lives. And for many families, that is another person who's watching your children while you're working or a daycare or, you know, school. Yes. Really important to to recognize those important people in our lives. All oh right. When I was growing up, the one thing I wish I had learned about money is... The way it can compound and... Grow. I mean, I just didn't have any sense of how you invest. Mm-hmm. So, are you a big investor now? What? Do, how do you like to invest your money? You know, on a personal basis, no. I am very focused on Birchbox being a pretty big, um, pretty big investment in Gamble. I invest in the alumni of Birchbox and their companies in a small way. But other than that, I haven't, you know, made it a priority to really understand the things that I need to like Bitcoin. <laughs> we all need to. Oh my gosh. I'm supposed to explain Bitcoin to an audience in a few weeks and I'm nervous. Can I be there? I mean, I don't even want to be there. I, <laughs> <laughs> I watched the documentary. I've interviewed experts. I mean, I get it, but I don't right. really, it's not a tangible thing. It's really abstract. And it's really abstract. It's really, it's, it's so interesting and incredible. My brother has done incredibly well investing in it. Um, and has been telling me forever to do it. But I think the lack of tangibility has, has just made me put it off. And I think that's true for most people. If you can't see it, you can't believe it. And that's okay. Not every investment's for everybody. And right. we're hearing a lot about it, but it's a very, very, very small, small, small percentage of human beings that are in this market and actually making money. Um, but it's very exciting because it's we're talking potentially billions of dollars hundreds of millions of dollars for those who did do very well all right enough about bitcoin i'm over it um (laughs) okay if when i donate i like to give to blank because education because it's the most important foundation to giving more people real potential Yes. So education, like you give, you help with scholarships or like pencils of promise. All of that. Yes. Giving back to, giving back to schools. We built um, schools with pencil, pencil of promise. So both personally and through Birchbox and we've partnered with the Flatiron School to give scholarships to um, girls to learn how to code. But just at a fundamental level, I think it's the place that really attracts for me. It, it feels like the the place to spend the money, spend the time. Mm -hmm. What a great way to start the year. Thank you for helping us all adjust to the new year with some real inspiration and hope. Katya, you are a role model of all role models. Thank you. Thank you so much to Katya for joining us 
on the show to kick us off in 2018. To subscribe to Birchbox, head over to birchbox.com. You can also follow Katya on Twitter at Katya WB, as well as you can follow Birchbox at Birchbox on Twitter. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. As you know, I'm still all about the co-hosting on Fridays. So if you're interested in joining the mic, sharing the mic, head over to somoneypodcast.com and click on Ask Farnoosh. And while you're there, let me know that you want to co-host and that you want me to help you with anything that's happening in your financial life. We're still all about you on this show as we make 2018 a record year. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. And I hope to see you back here on Wednesday, where our guest is the singular Sheila Bear, former chairwoman of the FDIC. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope your day is so money. Money.